there was no internet back in the in the 80s and there was no blogs and no podcasts no chat boards and no people emailing and no social media so what happened at disneyland pretty much stayed at disneyland Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of the DCL Duo podcast. And tonight we are excited to welcome, I would say, a bit of Disney celebrity onto our show. If you're a Disney fan, you probably know his name. He's been writing books about Disney since 1994. And his first book, Mouse Tales, was actually one of the first books I ever read about Disney and Disneyland when I was living in Southern California at the time. So we want to welcome and are excited to welcome David K to the show. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. <laughs> We're excited. We're really excited. Yeah. Um, you're, you're our biggest celebrity on the show thus far. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no offense to uh, Seth and Aaron from the unofficial guys, but yes, I think... <laughs> It is a high honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, we like to start out with folks as just personal Disney background. So before we dive into your books, I mean, I know that you're down in California, so you're probably going to Disneyland quite a bit. But what's your background in terms of going to the parks? And we're a Disney Cruise Line kind of focused podcast in some ways. So I'm wondering if you've had any experience with the Cruise Line. But what, what's your experience with Disney just personally? Yeah, well, I'm uh, a lifelong Disney fan, literally from from almost birth. I was raised in Orange County, California. I'm not far from Disneyland. I like to say I grew up up in the shadow of the Matterhorn, and it was always it was always a, a big fascination for me. I never had the urge to want to work there, but I just wanted to play there. <laughs> it was always a you know just a, as I'm sure you love the cruise line and other facets of Disney. Disneyland was truly. I've been visiting there for 50 years, and can hardly wait for the doors to to open up again. And when I became a writer, it just was natural that, especially back when I first started researching Disney in the in the 80s, there were no Disneyland books. Period. There were Disney put out you know souvenir guides and such like that, but there was no such thing as a history of Disneyland or anything like that. So that became a natural topic of of study that continued to this day. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, before your book, Mouse Tales, everything that was written about Disney was really by Disney. And so they really mm -hmm. controlled the narrative, whether it was press pieces or guides and things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, we heard something similar from the unofficial guides folks that if you wanted a travel guide about Disney, nothing really kind of existed out there that was independent of Disney. So yeah, you you guys were pioneers in a way, really paved the way I think yeah. for a lot of the commentary that goes on today about Disney. So. Yeah, it, well, exactly right. Because when I first started working on my first book, Mouse Tales, would have been early in 1987. And there were literally no books, not even by Disney, except for, you know, the first 25 years or, mm -hmm. or something that was sold in the parks. There were literally no books about Disneyland. And about six months into interviewing folks, um, a book came out called Disneyland Inside Story by a beautiful coffee table book by an Imagineer named Randy Bright filled with fun stories and such. And I, I saw it on the book sh bookstore shelf and I'm like, oh, crud. <laughs> Somebody else had the idea to write a book about Disneyland uh, like me. And I started reading it and I'm like, oh, wait, this is like the sugar-coated, right. <laughs> happy, you know, official version of Disney. There's still a place for somebody who wants like the unofficial, real, mm -hmm. non-Disney processed version. Yeah. yeah. Plus that's a coffee table book that I feel like coffee table books are different while they might have some interesting content. You know, it, they're mostly focused on the glossy pictures and things like that. <laughs> and so, it, yeah, well, well, don't go putting down coffee table books because that was my, my newest book. Is yes. a coffee table no, book. No, yeah. I've, got, no. I've come, 
No, I've I, come 360. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I like coffee table books. I just think they're just different. It's a different style of writing, yeah. right? It's a, it, you know, it's their tidbits with, with, like I said, glossy pictures that show you more mm-hmm. visually instead of, instead of more narrative form like your other books. Right. So D- David, I got, I want to go back and ask the question. So have you, have you ever been on a Disney cruise? I'm curious. I have several times. It's my heart belongs at Disneyland, so that's my my greatest love. But I do love uh, the Disney cruises. My family loves to cruise it, once every. I, I don't know when our next one will be, but uh, we look forward to to once again sailing the seas with uh, Mickey and crew. It's it's they do a really good job of taking a lot of the feelings and successes and what people want from from Disney parks and putting that on water and translating that into into that format they i don't think anybody does a better job than they do our order of love would be disney cruise line would be number one and then disneyland would be the close second as well so well and fingers crossed mm, that, okay fingers crossed that maybe with the wish coming out one of those ships is going to get based on the west coast to make all of our lives a little easier to experience disney cruises oh out my here. goodness yes <laughs> i would lo- I would i would cruise much more frequently if if uh they were closer. Well, as I alluded to in the beginning, you've written six books on Disney reaching back to 1994. And I really wanted to start with your first book because it's near and dear to my heart. I've had a copy of it forever. And I remember my uh, when I lived in Southern California, my friends and I would go to Disneyland quite often. And when that book came out, it became sort of a big topic of, of like conversation reading amongst ourselves. And so I, you know, I'm curious what prompted you to write kind of that you know, unofficial insider's tale of Disney. Well, I, I always, always loved Disneyland and Disney everything as, as a young person. And then when I went to college, studied journalism at Cal State Fullerton, which is a, a university, probably the closest major university to Disneyland. So many of the people there, so many of the students were part-time workers at Disneyland. And I befriended many of them and they would, when I'd see them in the morning for class, they'd tell you would not believe what happened at work today. <laughs> and to hear them sharing, sharing work stories from Disneyland was, I, I never put the two and two together as a visitor to Disneyland. I never thought about the employees, you know, that this was a real job for them. It was just, you know, playtime. And, you know, <laughs> it, in, in my head, that was really a Jungle Cruise skipper and, and whatnot. But it's like, oh, no, this, this is, is a real life job. And, and just like all of us, when we come home from work with stories about, you know, the customers that we dealt with or, you know, the, the highs and the lows and everything in between, that's what it, the experience of working at Disneyland only only magnified and you know just in living color because all these amazing stories took place at a place at least back then where it was not known for unusual things happening there was no there was no internet back in the in the 80s and there was no blogs and no podcasts no chat boards and no people emailing and no social media so <laughs> what happened at Disneyland pretty much stayed at Disneyland unless you're an employee and the employees were all very it was a tight knit family so they sort of kept the stories in house and I had the idea to take them out how out of house or <laughs> how you you would term it and and nobody had ever done something like this before and uh, that became mouse tales how do you think Disney kept those stories under wraps for so long? I mean, to be fair, obviously, like you just said, there there wasn't social media, but there were still regular, you know, newspapers and television news back in the day. So, you know, how do you how do you think they kept themselves mostly out of the newspapers and, you know, or out of out of TV TV news? Well, first of all, they the employees back then, up until about the last year I was at school, <laughs> did a really good job of of promoting this family feeling that 
even if you were a sweeper or a popcorn seller or a ride operator or popcorn vendor, you were still part of the family. You were helping to create the magic. And we didn't air our dirty laundry or our secrets. You know, that was that was part of the magic, part of the mystique, and that really shouldn't get out. So employees were in no hurry to share that information. And when I first started working on on the book, I ran into a number of people who seemed like very nice people. They just declined to share the stories because they figured, you know, well, that's, the outside world doesn't want to know that. That's top secret. And Disney did a really good job of, with that, keeping it under wraps. And the local newspapers sort of, uh, Disney was a big advertiser. And it wasn't this giant business it is now. It was, you know, they owned a couple of parks and made some movies once in a while. So it wasn't this major corporation. So they let a lot of things slide unless it was something completely, you know, major or some, you know, mm-hmm. giant blackout that shuts out the whole park and people <laughs> right. are stranded on Skyway vehicles or, or whatnot that you that there was no way to keep that secret. Disney Disney kept kept wraps on, on most of these things. And and how did you you know it sounds like you said you started writing it in I think you said eighty seven and so you know for the book to come out in ninety four that's you know substantial amount of time. Was that because you're meeting a lot of resistance trying to get people to talk and open up? Or how did you get those stories? How did you overcome that kind of Disney family narrative to actually get people to, to open up about their experience? Right. Well, that was, that's, you nailed it. That's why it took seven years was because at first it was hard to get beyond the people I knew from school, you know, my classmates who were always willing to wear, share their funny stories. It was a lot of people who at first were hesitant to talk to an outsider. People always go, oh, you're the, the best known Disney insider. And it's like, no, I'm, 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 I'm probably the best known Disney outsider because <laughs> I've never worked for the company. I have, uh, I, I visit frequently. So I have, you know, some personal insight, but I don't know, you know, these stories they are not my stories. I'm sharing the gracious cast members who kindly share them with the world. And I'm just sort of the, the conduit. And I think People just had to get to know me and and what I was asking and trust that I would you know use the, use their stories for good instead of evil <laughs> and not and, use their names. Fact, think, well, no, no, no. Almost all, and in fact, in mouse sales, I, I name everyone who shared a story with me. I interviewed 220 people and I let people know you know. And in the back of the book, I'm gonna you know people are gonna know where these stories mm. came from. So I, I did hear a number of stories that sounded that I couldn't verify. So those left those out. But people knew that if they were going to shade the past in any way, that people were going to know exactly where they where they came from. So uh, it, it worked out well. You're being a pioneer and, you know, the Disney of today that we all sort of think about is known for high degree of secrecy. You know, I mean, they're not they're not, not Apple by any means, but they will, you know, they, they will throw their weight around if they don't like the message that's getting put out there. I'm wondering, did you were you concerned at all that Disney might try to stop you or did you experience any pushback from Disney at the at the time around trying to write this book or, or, at, or at publishing time? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if it was concern. It was probably more of stupidity or youth or obliviousness. Because <laughs> I was, when I started this, I was just out of just out of college, 21 years old. I had no idea what I was doing and what I was getting into. And I did get messages initially from Disney's PR department once they heard what I was doing, because I'd, I'd call up somebody who worked for Disney and they declined to help me. And then they promptly, I'm sure, contact their boss and said, hey, do you know somebody sniffing around trying to find out? stories, secrets and stuff. So I, at first I, I got some letters from the publicity department encouraging me to to not <laughs> do this <laughs> or at least to get their approval, which I knew was not going to happen. And then it, uh, toward the end of the project, it 
started being uh, contacts from their legal department, <laughs> stressing at first that I shouldn't do it. And then the last message was that I legally was not permitted to do it, that they would not allow me to publish a book about Disneyland. And at that point, I knew, okay, they're just making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah. you know, if I write it in a nice way, I make sure everything's accurate. I don't you know, share their, you know, competitive advantage secrets, right, their you know, trade that, secrets. Uh, their trade secrets, you know, I, and everything's written in a nice way. So yeah. uh, I figured they would only benefit from it. And uh, I think that's how it turned out. Absolutely. I think a good point for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book, Mouse Tales is, I would say it's sort of a tell-all, but it's not a negative tell-all. It tells a lot of sort of about the, what's happening behind the scenes about, you know, the, the employees and how they would party and how they would do pranks on one another and, you know, and how they would, you know, interact with the guests and, and even about sort of the characters in costume and, and what they were expected and how difficult it was to be those characters in the blazing heat. And, you know, all that kind of insider background information that you won't hear from the Walt Disney Company. But it's not a negative portrayal of Disneyland by any means. In fact, I think your book tells a lot of really positive stories. There was one story that really touched me in reading where a child with autism ran up past the line to wait for to meet with Mickey for the first time and said Mickey Mouse. And apparently that that was that child's first words. They had never that child had never spoken before. So, you know, there's some really kind of heartwarming stories in there as well as some of the more seedy elements that those of us visiting the parks just wouldn't have known about. Yeah, well, I think Disney, finally, after reading the book, came to realize that not only was it written in a positive way, but that people, after reading the book, wouldn't be afraid to visit Disneyland. It would intrigue them and want them to visit even more. It's not supposed to, say, stay away from Disneyland. It's like, no, Disney tries as hard as it can to be perfect in all its operations. It's advertising itself as the literal happiest place on Earth, but in reality, you know, it. It can't be perfect. And here's some of the few times where where it's it, it comes up a little short, no matter how hard they try. Yeah, and that's one question I had is you know, after the book comes out and you've written several others since, and we'll we'll sort of go through, I think, a little bit of each because I'm curious to get your thoughts on each of them. But after the book came out, did your relationship with Disney evolve or has it evolved over time? Are they more forthcoming with you or do they help in any way with with the work now? Or is it still very much kind of an independent exercise in the in letters from the legal? department? <laughs> well, no more letters from the legal department, but it, but it is different. In fact, that now they know who I am and, and what I do. I think they're more accepting of that, but now it, it's intriguing. I heard from uh, from the, uh, if you know who Dave Smith is, he's the, or was, the archivist, mm-hmm. uh, primary archivist at, at Disney. And he told me shortly after the book came out that Everybody at Disney's read it. Most people love it and enjoy it, including him. Mm-hmm. And, and he was doing this while buying several copies as Christmas presents. For his <laughs> I um, love that. Yeah, he said, but our official response that we've been told about your book is, oh, I've heard of it, but I've never read it. So <laughs> he's actually been quoted in the newspaper in the LA Times saying, oh, I've heard of it, but I've never read it, even though he's, you know, he, he bought a half dozen copies and has told me he loves the book. <laughs> because he said the reason for that is they want is they saw it as competition mm. to their own books. All the other books about Disneyland and Disney parks were written by and published by the Disney company. So they figured anytime someone bought one of my books, they were costing the company 20 bucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so they funny. Figured, you know, as little, as little publicity as we can give this guy, 
the better, which which is fine. I'm, I'm friendly with, with everyone I meet from the company. They're, they're always very gracious, but usually don't offer a whole lot of official help. Yeah. Well, that's funny because their, their books are really different than yours. So from my perspective, I think, you know, it's a different place. It's like, uh, like you alluded to earlier, the difference between like a burn bomb guide and an official guide. Right. There's a, there's a place for both. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's new with the book that they just released recently, the coffee table book, I'm trying that they've been touting forever. I can't Um, remember. I know. I have a copy in all the hotel rooms with the stories of anyway, that it's just, it's just, yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I purposely have blocked it out. Yeah. (laughs) It just, it's just, but it is a, that is a different book, right? Like that is, that is sort of trying to extend the Disney magic into your home. You can sit there and flip through it and evoke all of that emotion that you get at Disney, but you know, that that's far from or different from necessarily a book like Mouse Tales, right? Where you're, you're, you're not necessarily trying to evoke well, that same Disney, like that Disney controlled narrative. You're trying to understand the narrative, you know, and, outside of that. And now they have a bunch of right. various, you know, history of Disney type books that have been put out by Disney. But again, those are different books than what your books are. And yeah. so I think, you know, there's, like you said, there's a place for both. And there's probably people like Brian and I, who are obviously big Disney fans, who are going to read both kinds of books. Well, if there's one thing I've learned doing this, there's, there's no shortage of people who want as much Disney content as they can get. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So David, I'm curious. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so David, I'm curious, uh, you know, from mouse tales and it, it has several, has, it does have, it has at least one, doesn't it have two sequels? Sort of two. It has, we'll call it one and a half. The, the first is a, is a true sequel because five years after mouse tales came out, I wanted to do, uh, and people wanted more crazy stories about Disneyland. Mm-hmm. So uh, the point of the next book, More Mouth Tales, became in part, here's a here's 500 more crazy anecdotes of things that have happened at Disneyland. But also, how has the park changed over those course of five years and yeah. the five years since Mouth Tales came out? And so back then, I don't know if anybody who was who was really locked in on Disneyland in the late 90s and early 2000s. Remember, that was not the best theme park time. It was probably the low the low point in theme park history, primarily because the management, the park management, it wasn't theme park people. They had misplaced priorities. They, Disney has always wanted to make money, but they, they always traditionally did it in a way that was sort of guest first, figuring if we give you the best experience possible, you're going to want to give us all your money and come back and tell your friends and come back over and over again, in which case everybody wins. We have a great time. They get a lot of money and they're incentivized to continue providing a fantastic guest experience. That's uh, to a great extent how it is now, how it started and how it's been most of its history. But there was a time during the the sequel to Mouse Tales, more Mouse Tales, where sort of retail people and marketing people were in charge of, of the theme parks. And the only thing they cared about was how can we maximize the amount of money we take from you? Um, well, if we give you a little less magic, it would turn into a lot less magic. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, our profit margin is much bigger. And that, that works for a short amount of time. And, and then with the 50th anniversary coming up, they realized, oh, we better get back to our roots. And, and fortunately, they did. So that was the, the first sequel. More Mouse Tales sort of talked about that time. And the second sort of unofficial sequel that came out a few years ago, it was called The People Versus Disneyland. And I had not written a book about Disneyland in 15 years, so I wanted to share more crazy stories about Disneyland. But I looked at the park and said, okay, what's the major way that it's changed in the last 15 years? And it was the influence of lawyers and lawsuits. (laughs) Completely changed the 
you know, how the park looked, how the park operated, what it was like to visit, what it was like to, to work there. And so many of the changes I discovered at Disneyland, every little thing that was changed from new things that were added, how ride vehicles were altered to benches and planters that suddenly disappeared to railings that were suddenly raised. Everything from what stayed to what went away to what was added was influenced by by the lawyers being in charge. And so that became the point of the most recent Mouse Tales type book. Yeah, it's super interesting because it's really a, a result of sort of the evolution of personal injury law and employment law in the United States. And so Brian and I, t- to confess to dis- you, full disclosure, we're both we're lawyers. Both lawyers. <laughs> and, um, ah, okay, okay. and Brian has practiced in employment law for most of his career. Yeah, for, for, for a Fortune 50 company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I have practiced doing some employment law and some personal injury law and some other stuff as well. So I have not I have not had a chance to read The People versus Disney yet but it is like top of my list now. Let's skip there for a second because my that, that book, my understanding is the way you wrote that was basically by sort of, you know, going to the courthouse or online records or however you found them and sort of really looking at kind of like what are what are the lawsuits that Disney is experiencing and then translating that into the impact to the park operations. Is that right? Is that how you sort of research that book? It, it, in great measure, I've pulled most every case that had been filed against Disneyland since it opened in 1955. A lot of that work had been done for Mouse Tales because Mouse Tales did have one chapter about lawsuits. So I had, by that time, the, the thousand or so cases that had been filed against Disney up until the early 90s, I'd already pulled. Some of them I discussed in Mouse Tales, some of them I didn't. In this book, I discussed all of them, but also to pull all the cases that had been filed in the, in the 20 years in between, and then interviewed a lot of people involved, lawyers who had sued Disneyland plaintiffs, and some of the cast members who were named in the suits or were involved in the incidents. And then to me, the most fascinating part was looking at how each of these cases affected what Disneyland did and how Disneyland completely changed 180 from it, the Disneyland of 1955, which was thinking that they were perfect knowing that they wanted to deliver, that their intentions were good so that they figured they could do whatever they want and that they would fight any change unless like the stagecoach, they could say, hey, this keeps turning over and people are getting hurt. We better get rid of this. (laughs) But for the most part, they were insistent that to protect the magic, we have to have a little risk. And that maybe that means some employees are not going to be happy with having to wear this particular costume or maybe guests might stub their toe if they're not careful or and that switched 180 to today's Disneyland which is the lawyers saying hey five steps down the road if somebody's not thinking they conceivably could get into trouble in this way so let's circumvent that let's avoid that possibility and it might be a little less magical but we're going to have 2.3% fewer slip and falls or, or whatever whatever it is. And so they, through uh, legal advice and spreadsheets, they've changed the park to be a much safer park and, uh, you know, and, and just different in so many, in so many ways. Sounds like some of the rides probably shut down for longer now, whereas it, it used to be that, you know, a, a park, uh, an attendant for a ride or even the custodial staff could sort of jump on the tracks and take an obstruction out while the rides were still moving. And that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, that's exactly the type of thing. Yeah. I was going to say we had, we had Lynn Barron from the sweep spot on who worked in the custodial staff at Disneyland for a while. And he would tell us, he was telling us the story of, you know, on Big Thunder Mountain, we used to just like 
hop down on the track and hop back the other side to get the trash cans, you know, service. And he's like, that wouldn't happen today. That would not happen. <laughs> you know, while well, the cars were all running too, you know, like it. Exactly true. To, to give our listeners kind of a, who may not have read some of these books or your books before kind of an idea, like I'd love to ask you without giving away the, the, the best of it all, but do you have some favorite stories that have come out of, you know, Mouse Tales or the People versus Disney that really just stood out in your mind? Things that you really particularly enjoyed researching or writing about? Right. Well, for me, such as in People versus Disneyland, uh, what always tickles me are the, are, are the more Disney-ish the stories. Like in other words, if it's somebody who, who slips in a restaurant and hurts themselves, that's, that's sad and unfortunate. But that to me, there's nothing intrinsically Disney about that. But when somebody has a problem with one of the characters, <laughs> there, there's no more Disney experience than that. And when uh, so those, those to me are the are, are the most intriguing. There was one during one of the Christmas parades. It was raining, and Disney decided to run all the, the parade and the floats despite it raining. And one of the floats was the genie from Aladdin driving this sort of sleigh. And because the wheels couldn't get any traction, his vehicle went out of control, and he barreled into the into the the audience on the <laughs> side and, and a couple of guests got got run over i don't think they were for, uh, you know seriously hurt but i mean that's something that could only happen at a, at a disney <laughs> theme park <laughs> when you got to wonder in that moment like you know i've seen before like things are mishaps happen in the parade right we we, we saw a parade where you know float broke down nothing as egregious as what you're talking about but the float breaks down right. and they're trying to keep the Disney magic going for everyone else in the parade. You know, the characters are walking around and interacting with the kids. People are still waving, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And you just got to wonder, like, in that moment, what did they do? <laughs> because the magic is now completely gone, uh, especially for those guests. So, and those yeah. poor characters right. who have to keep, you know, to keep their happy face on or or stand around for longer in that really hot, you know, costume with the with a Mickey head on their on their shoulders and all of that. Right. Well, that it had been part of the official training of parade workers was no matter what goes wrong, you continue to do your dance step and your waving and your act. And, you know, the guy in the next, uh, you know, electrical parade costume could be on fire. You continue <laughs> dancing and waving and smiling and, we'll, you know, we'll hose them down. We'll take care of that. You just you pretend like there's nothing wrong. I also love there's a couple of stories in Mouse Tales about, you know, fights between characters and guests, like physical, like fist fights and stuff that happened. And those are just, I mean, they're hilarious. I mean, I hope, you know, I hope people don't didn't get seriously injured, but some of them are just really kind of hilarious because you can just picture it in your head. Like you can picture like Br'er Bear, like, you know, getting into a fight with a guest. Right. And Well, part of what you have to also remember is a lot of the stories from Mouse Tales are shared by people who were working at Disneyland in the uh, 1960s and early 70s, where Disneyland was a far different place than it is now. And I mean, you go to Disneyland or Disney World nowadays, and it's it's crowded with a, with a million guests at all times. And the employees know that if they look at somebody sideways, you know, they're you know, <laughs> they're out fired. of a job. Yeah, and, yeah they're, they're done. And but back in the 70s it was, and, and especially the 60s, it was a small little business. And especially during the winter, I mean, there could be a couple thousand people in the park on a day, not, not 60,000, maybe 2,000. And so 
you know, no, I want to, I don't want to say nobody's going to see you. If you, if you want to bump somebody who's giving you a hard time or, or whatever, or talk back to somebody, but, and also, you know, you were, you had a more, with fewer employees. So you had a closer relationship with the people you work, not just with, but for, and they knew you better on an individual basis. And, and if a guest made a certain charge, you know, they were more likely to stick up for you, I think, than, than nowadays. Well, and there's no there's no cell phone cameras recording it and publishing it out. There you go. Yeah. 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 It sounds like it was yeah. a little bit of a Wild West, if you will, in Frontierland with some of the with some of the actors. Yeah. And so they, they had a lot of liberty in in their, you know, things weren't scripted the way they are now. Yes. Yes. No, exactly right. So one more question on this set of books, and then I want to I want to go through some of your some of your others. But one more question here, which is just you you mentioned kind of the the stories of the lawyers getting involved, and so being two lawyers, I've got to ask the question: What was the most absurd kind of change that you saw Disney make to the park that you know came out of your research for for People versus Disney? Well, there was uh, to me the most absurd one was there was a period where the lawyers sort of first took over at Disneyland, and it was sometime in the early 2000s. I, off the top of my head, I, I can't remember, but there was a, a suit about someone slipping near a fountain or a drinking fountain or something. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, almost overnight, anywhere where there was water in the park, including around upraised edges like stairways and stuff, Disney went around with this fluorescent yellow tape and <laughs> just started putting it uh. everywhere. And it looked, I mean, in these ornate areas in alcoves and the Sleeping Beauty Castle, which are these beautiful areas that suddenly, you know, look like a construction zone. It was just hideous. And I mean, their their heart was in the right place. They wanted to make sure nobody tripped on a step or slipped near a fountain, but it just looks so horrific. And that tape stayed up a couple of weeks. And I, you know, I I don't know how many people's uh, souvenir, you know, (laughs) vacation photos were ruined of posing in front of, uh, you know, all this, this yellow tape, but it was, you know, it looked like police scenes it was it's just bad well it's funny because it's like being taping put up on stairs so you don't fall down but you're wandering through a theme park with you know thrill rides so you know like, yeah. yeah there you yeah. go yeah well it's like public buses right the lip of every public bus stair has this yellow reflective like tape thing and so but that doesn't it, detract from no. the magic of the bus <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah. It's, these, are, right, these are completely different experiences but but to your point david it, it really it, it's 100 percent responsive to lawsuits and so that's that's why they exist on public buses for the, uh, those who are listening the reason you have that is because of lawyers and lawsuits so <laughs> one of the other books you wrote is called reality land now my perception of Reality Land, and again, I'll, I'll be—I'll I'll admit here—I haven't had a chance to read Reality Land yet. But Reality Land sounds like sort of like Mouse Tales, but for Disney World—is that—is that fair, or is it—is it? Am I getting that wrong? Well, a little bit. That's how it started out. Was the idea originally for for it to be sort of a East Coast version of Mouse Tales? I would go, I'd interview a couple hundred cast members, and I collect you know a thousand crazy stories of life at Walt Disney World, and that thought came to me before I had ever visited Disney World. I figured it was just, you know, the Magic Kingdom was basically just a slightly bigger Disneyland. And then right after Mouse Tales came out in 1994, I flew to Florida to check it out and begin seeing if I could find some people to interview. And my mouth (laughs) fell to the pavement. I couldn't, oh my gosh, this is not anything like Disneyland. This is, this is an entire 
Disney City. And the more people I talked about, the more I realized Disney World has this history which the company has never shared before. It, you know, there's been a couple of books about Disney World with the the official history of, you know, oh, we secretly bought the land and then we built this and then we opened this and then we expanded here. But as far as who these crazy people were and all the the strange things they did to build a Disney city. That had never been discussed before. So it became certainly still a book with some interesting, fun stories, but also the unofficial true history of how Walt Disney World came to be. And back then, when I first started on that book about 20 years ago, I interviewed so many people who were at Disney World in the beginning, before the beginning, who had never been interviewed before and since. And I was so fortunate to get to talk to, to them about their work because, you know, maybe they would pass away a year or two or three later. And that I, I will, Disney is such a, a great history minded company, but it, it traditionally has had one shortcoming, which it's gotten a little better at, but, but still it's left a, a place for me is that Disney's always done an excellent job of promoting and preserving the memories of its, what it considers its artists, the animators and the imagineers and it celebrates them and shares their stories and constantly writes books about their memories and who they were and what they did but the people who make the magic on a daily basis they've always sort of you know figured well those are just you know sort of our retail people those are you know those are like the guys they're not the people making the movies they're you know that's the projectionist and the usher you know that's not really but to me the people the cast members that's truly who who creates the magic for the you know, for the visitors on a daily basis and where all the amazing stories are is not so much in where they got the idea for that particular shot of this particular ride or movie but you know the fun things that happen while people are living the park that's what Disneyland and Disney World were made for, were to change and for people to experience their own adventure on a daily basis. And the people who help them create those, that's that's what I'm most interested in. Well, and some of the most powerful things I've seen of late are those moments where one cast member in whatever position they're in, you know, just a, a singular cast member has an impact on somebody's day, right? And that person in the age of cell phones and all that sort of stuff records it, posts about it. And the amount of goodwill that Disney gets out of that cast member invoking just a little bit of magic for one guest, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how long the term pixie dusting has been around, but that just, it just amplifies out there. People hear those stories and they're like, well, I'm only going to get that at Disney. I mean, you know, no one at Red Robin has made my kid, you know, <laughs> you know, smile right. like that, right? You know, no one, no one at XYZ has ever spent 20 minutes out of their day to try to make my life a little bit easier and my kid's life a little bit more magical. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of power there and there's a lot of power in preserving those, those stories for sure. Yeah. And Disney hasn't do done a good job of preserving those historic memories. No. And when, when most people look back at their Disney World vacation or their trip to Disneyland, so often the thing they remember most is not, you know, the ride on Storybook Land or the, you know, the churro they had, but it's, it's some special interaction they had directly with or made possible because of a cast member doing, doing an extraordinary job. And by the, by the same token, every once in a while, a cast member will not do a good job. <laughs> and those are the, those are the disappointments that hurt the deepest when somebody, you know, it, it fortunately doesn't happen often, but when somebody has a bad time in a, in a Disney park or even a Disney cruise line experience, so often it's not because the film broke down, but 
because the cast member didn't handle that that uh, interaction as well as they could have. So there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and those things get all over social media now. I mean, now now with a twenty oh, oh, yeah, yeah with the twenty four hour news cycle and twenty four hour social media, you know, and Twitter, it's very easy for that information to get out. Yeah. Hashtag, very quickly. Hashtag Disney's lost its magic, right? right. I, mean, yeah. Yeah, well, they, well, I hope not. Well, let me, I'll show you a little example from reality land. And that's when the contemporary hotel first opened back in 71, along with magic kingdom, it was first Disney didn't had never run a hotel before the Disneyland hotel out in California was run by another company and owned by another company. Yep. So it had never had its own hotel. So it hired all outside hotel professional people to come in and design and build and operate its its two hotels, the Contemporary and the Polynesian. So they were they there were no Disney Disney people. The people running the rides and designing the monorail and such, those were all theme park people from California. But it was hotel people who were in charge of the the hotels in the beginning and they ran things at those two hotels like it was a Marriott or a Hilton and it was it was have high standards but move the people in and move the people out move the people in and move the people out and if somebody complains apologize and then move on to the next one and that even though there're two hotels because they only had two hotels they were constantly full they were getting a fair number of complaints from people who weren't getting the Disney experience that they hoped for. And most of it was no one's fault. It was just that things were new and, you know, things weren't timed out properly. And, you know, there weren't enough restaurants or whatever the individual problem each person had. So what Disney did was it started replacing some of those hotel people with theme park people who had never worked at a hotel before. And one of them was a fellow named Bill Sullivan, uh, Sully, who, who uh, retired as in the early 90s as he was a, a Disneyland original from the Jungle Cruise, who ended up retiring as I think he was like the president of the Magic Kingdom by the time he was done. But as assistant manager of the contemporary, what he did was his thought was, okay, give me all those complaints. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to personally call up every single one of these people and apologize and fix it. So his first week on the job, that's what he did all day long was call up people who had any sort of complaint at all. Oh, there was no ice in the ice machine or whatever, or we had to wait too long for the monorail or whatever it is, apologize. And by the end of the conversation, his desire was to make sure that those people had a good view of Disney and that they planned to come back as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And for the handful of people who were like, nah, it was just too crowded. We didn't have a good time. I think we're out. We're not going to, we're not going to come to Disney world ever again. He said, come back. I'm going to pay for three nights at the contemporary. I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you a nice dinner at, at Cinderella's castle. And we're going to treat you to the Meg. And he, hundreds of families he brought back on Disney's dime who had who weren't thrilled with their stay at the contemporary and they gave them a weekend at magic kingdom wow. and the contemporary on the house just so that when they would leave they would have a good view of disney they would tell their friends and they would come back and he made hundreds of lifetime fans you know i can't imagine any other company that would that would have done that but it's funny that is you know that is almost exactly kind of the the story arc as well i mean kind of the story arc as well with the cruise line, right? I mean, it was just sort of, you know, I think was it Michael Eisner took a trip on the big red boat and was like, this is not the Disney experience. We have to control this end to end. Like we need to build some ships, right? It's that sort of thing. Like an outside company was running it. They didn't really like that they were 
not controlling the experience, right? You have another book, Mouse Under Glass, which which also feels like to me to be kind of that insider or, well, you've called yourself the professional outsider, but the, with the, the insiders look at more of the imagineering portion of, of, Disney's, of Disney's business. And so I'm wondering, can you talk to people a little bit about what the premise of that book is and what, it, what it's meant to sort of convey? Right. Well, with Mouse Tales, my hope was to share to people everything they didn't already know about Disneyland, all the, the fun facts, <laughs> you know, the obvious things Disney had, had spread. But my goal was, what was I curious about Disneyland? What did I want to know that I didn't already know? As a, as a big Disney fan, I already knew all the basic stuff. Let's go beneath the surface. What else is there? Tell me more stories, more secrets that I didn't already know. And my idea with Mouse Under Glass was to do that same thing about their classic, classic animated movies, going back to Snow White. Mm-hmm. And then as part of that, how they took those stories and tried to translate those into theme park attractions. So it's primarily about the animated movies and all the secrets and behind-the-scenes stories. But also, uh, and, and what's been interesting is so many of the ideas that I talk about in Mouse Under Glass when it first came out 20 years ago about, oh, here's an idea that they had that they never built about a Beauty and the Beast uh, restaurant. And here's one about a Little Mermaid ride. Mm -hmm. And here's, you know, and all these rides, which they designed, but didn't produce back when the book first came out. So many of them since they dusted off those plans and eventually turned them into a ride. So, so many of them written as if <laughs> they don't exist yet. And now they do because as Disney like to say, we never throw anything away. We keep our you know, we keep our plans and when there's when there's an opening, we'll dust them off and, and bring them out. Yeah, they find just the right time too, it seems like to sort of use certain IP at certain times. And for example, the the news recently about the retrofit of Splash Mountain that's going to now be a pr- Princess and the Frog. They're going to you know, retheme the, the ride at both Disney World and Disneyland. And it's it's uh, I think it's a great change. I'm excited to see what they do with it. But yeah, I think to your point, they they have probably ideas that in their sort of vaults that they can kind of pull out at any time and decide, oh, now's the right time for this ride. Yeah, and they're also encouraging their designers to constantly be coming up with new ideas and new changes and retrofits. And, you know, so that wealth of that vault is constantly getting fuller and fuller and fuller. Any ride that could ever be designed has probably been designed already. They're just <laughs> just waiting for the the right character to to hang on it. So, Dave, you got a you've got a new book out as of late of last year. Do you want to talk to folks about that? Yeah, it's called The 55ers, The Pioneers Who Settled Disneyland. And it's all about the folks who worked at Disneyland when it first opened in 1955. And it is, it's unlike anything I've, I've ever done in the sense that it's a big, fat, glossy coffee table book. <laughs> and traditionally, traditionally, my books are not known for their photographs because it's hard to get Disney's permission to run any photographs. And uh, so I'm, I, I don't want to be publishing a lot of pictures of monorails or castles or such like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure if I have rights to do that. But in this case, my deal was to write about the people who work there and then to illustrate that through their own personal photographs. So, so many of these folks, or if they've passed on their their children, even grandchildren, have photo albums of their self or their relatives working in their space at Disneyland, which is neat because you get to see a lot of places 
that Disney never thought to take a picture of in 1955. It wasn't thinking of taking pictures of inside of shops and restaurants and such. It was taking pictures of the flying saucer, you know, the rocket ship. Peter Pan ride or say what it wasn't taking pictures of inside, you know, people eating chicken inside the chicken plantation house restaurant, (laughs) you know, selling, selling jars of jams and jelly off the, off the shelves in the Sunnyview farms shop. So it's, uh, but the people who were working there, that's naturally where they took a picture of themselves. So it's neat to be able to share that. In, I I think I saw an article you wrote recently, and you probably touch on this in the book as well about sort of Club 55, which it sounds like was Disney's way of trying to bring all of these folks kind of I'll say back together or celebrate them in some way. Is that is that right? Is that is that kind of what Club 55 was? That's well, that's that's close and was in a sense sort of a backwards inspiration for the book in that in 1970, for the 15th anniversary of Disneyland, Disney was preparing to open Walt Disney World. The next year, a lot of the original Disneyland people, a lot had retired and a lot of others had been shipped out to Disney World to open the Magic Kingdom. And the people at Disneyland were starting to feel a little less special because <laughs> all the all the money and attention was focused on Florida and people were sort of forgetting about Disneyland. There's not a whole lot going on at, at Disneyland in 1970 with no no prospects for a new attraction and everybody just talking about Florida, 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 Florida. So their idea, uh, Disney's idea was to honor the people who were still active at Disneyland, who were there in the beginning. So they identified about 130 people who were still working for the company 15 years later, who was there, who were there the first year. And they formed this club called Club 55. It was a takeoff on the Club 33, which was the elite special, you know, secret club for sponsors, Square, but this would be the special club for longtime employees. And as long as they stayed there, they'd have special perks and benefits, including an annual party every July 17th, where they'd take them to some special place, whether it was, you know, a, a nice special restaurant or the Queen Mary for dinner or to Catalina Island for a weekend or whatever, some special thing to honor them is a special place. And there's still about a dozen people from that club who are who are still around. Wow. Um, and and that club, which is is comprised of some very wonderful people, though, got me thinking because whenever one of those people would pass away, the newspapers would would hear, okay, there's 12 people left in Club 55, and they would write their stories as if, okay, there are 12 people left who worked at Disneyland in the beginning who were alive. And that's not true. Because only about 10% of the people who were at Disneyland in the beginning actually were part of Club 55 due to the fact that they'd retired or passed on or quit or worked for a, a, a lessee, another company. So they might have been working at Disneyland, say in security or as a sweeper, but they weren't working directly for Disney. They were working for another company. So even though they sort of were working at Disneyland, they didn't get to be part of the club. So my idea was, well, that's not right. These The people who were working there in 1955 are just as much to be honored and celebrate and have great stories as the people who were officially part of this club. And so that that was the inspiration that got me working on this book. Uh, started about five years ago. In the research for the book, I mean, do you have a favorite story or a story that stood out, really touched you in some way that... Um... Yeah, well, it's just been what's been great was finding out who all these people were and what they did and in the incredible backgrounds they had because so many of them were what they pretended to be at Disneyland. 
now at Disneyland, pretty much everybody who works there is just a regular person <laughs> like you and I. And they go to Disneyland and they put on a cowboy hat and they run Big Thunder or they put on an old fashioned dress and they work on Main Street. And then at the end of the day, they go home and they return to their normal suburban life. But when Disneyland first opened in 1955, Walt Disney wanted it to feel like it was real. In Adventureland, he wanted true to life adventurers. So all these salty, you know, really seedy characters were hired to work in Adventureland. All the cowboys who worked in Frontierland were real cowboys, either off the ranch, you know, straight off the ranch, or they used to work on the ranch and then they had become Hollywood cowboys mm-hmm. <laughs> and, they, and would, you know, do bit parts in movies. All the the Native Americans who worked in the Indian village had to be authentic Native Americans, again, either straight off the reservation or, you know, via Hollywood. All the shops on Main Street were individual shopkeepers. Disney didn't operate any of those shops. They were all operated by individual mom and pop folks who, you know, for a year or five years or 10 years, however long their their lease ended up being, you know, paid Disney a rent and ran their own souvenir shop. And all the all the performers in the Golden Horseshoe were old, like old time vaudevillian performers who, <laughs> you know, had been doing this for a lifetime. And that to me was really fascinating. Probably one of the more fascinating one was a woman named Judy Marsh, who was the original singer at the Golden Horseshoe Review, played the part of Slewfoot Sue. And she was this young, beautiful blonde who did a great job in the part, was very popular. And the only problem was she was a little too popular with the men. <laughs> would come to watch the show <laughs> because after the show, there would always be a long line of men waiting outside her dressing room door. And so she, <laughs> she supposedly, you know, had, had frequent visitors and which I guess Disney was not crazy about her, who opened it up and partying in her second story uh, dressing room. <laughs> but I guess where it went wrong for, for Judy was that one of her boyfriends, who she ended up breaking up with, got very jealous that she was seeing many, many other men and went to her apartment in Anaheim, not far from Disneyland, and decided that he would take his own life. He was so distraught. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so he turned on the oven in her apartment and was going to sort of gas himself, but figured he'd have one more last cigarette. <laughs> and he lit up a cigarette, caused an explosion. The house caught on fire. Oh, my God. The fire department came. The incident made it in the newspapers. Disney heard about it. And Judy Marsh, even though she had nothing to do with this incident, it happened at her house. And Walt did not want this sort of thing happening anymore with his performers. And she was let go and spent the rest of her singing career doing public appearances, often dressed as Slewfoot Sue you know, uh, sort of trying to capitalize on the old act she used to have at Disneyland. Wow, what a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah and there's and the neat thing is is there's hundreds of stories just like that with the in the book of, of people before I started researching it, I didn't even know they existed. They did and they they worked at Disneyland when it was brand new. Well, I got to ask, David, have you ever thought about turning your attention to the international parks or the cruise line or any of the other aspects of uh, of Disney? With the cruise line, I'm not sure anytime soon because I, I like for there to be a, a, a nice amount of history yeah. there. And and for me, the they're a little bit, I guess they've been there for a long time. <laughs> we think about it, but I, <laughs> I always sort of think of it, they're sort of one of the kid, you know, one of the younger additions to Disney stables. Yep. And eventually I may, I may write more about the international parks as well. There's been some writing I've done on the international parks has been worked into other blog writing 
or I know in reality land, I've got a, a, a section about Tokyo Disneyland mm-hmm. because reconstruction of Tokyo Disneyland had a great impact on Disney World because they were designing and building it at the exact same time they were designing and building Epcot. So there were there are a lot of stories on how those two were built in tandem with different and sometimes the same people and the different dynamics that came out of that. Well, can I be so bold as to ask what's next? Can you share anything about maybe what your next project is? Yeah, I, uh, uh, my next book is actually it's not ready to be announced yet, but it won't be related to Disney. It'll be something something a fair bit different. I'm not sure what my next Disney book will be, but I, I certainly will do some sort of Disney project at some point within the next 12 months tied into the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World in October of next year. It just should be a very exciting time. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. We're hoping to get back to the parks sometime well, soon. Or, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. and, and on a boat and anything, <laughs> anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Anything I would take right now. Well, David, as we do with all of our guests, we wanted to give you a rapid fire round of some of your personal Disney favorites. And this is Sam's favorite part of the show. So I'm going to throw it over to her to uh, to go through our rapid fire round. Yeah. yeah. So I tell okay. I tell everybody with our rapid fire rounds that there are really no wrong answers. And so and there are really no <laughs> rules. But I also like to joke that there are no wrong answers unless we disagree with you. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just kidding there. So what is your favorite Disney or Pixar character? Uh, would probably be the scrappy, scrawny, barefoot Mickey Mouse of 1928. Ah, you have to go super classic. Okay, what is your favorite Disney or Pixar movie? The Incredibles. It's a great movie. I love that you picked a super modern one there. What's your favorite Disney song? Whole New World. Okay, Disneyland or Disney or Walt Disney World? Yeah, I think everybody picks the one they first visited, which for me is Disneyland. What's your favorite Disney park? And so I'm not saying Disneyland versus Disney World versus Tokyo. I'm talking park like Epcot, Magic Kingdom, California Adventure, that sort of thing. Yeah, oh, Disneyland. by by mile. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have that that double the double love Disneyland Resort and Disneyland Park specifically. What is your favorite land in one of the parks? And this could be in any of the parks. Main Street, USA. I, uh, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I absolutely knew that you were going to say that. I For feel sure. like a true sort of Disney historian. That's the right answer, right? It's yeah. a yeah. Your favorite classic ride or attraction is the Jungle Cruise. That's a great one. Oh, that's a great one. Your favorite modern ride or attraction? Would be Soren. Which, which do you do you prefer Soren over California to Soren around the world? Uh, over California. I, I can't believe I'm saying that because in theory, it should be better to be around the world, but it, it's not. Yeah, we love, we love, we love Soren over California. The, we've been down to Disneyland a few times where they've brought that back and uh, it's just so great. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely, yeah. it's definitely our favorite. It, it just plays better. Yeah, absolutely. I wish they would do maybe an, an updated one so you could get even, you know, sort of the better um, details or better. Yeah, but um, that's the problem with Soren right. around the world that people have is that because they did it with a lot of CGI effects, it really just doesn't feel right. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I feel like yeah. they could update, okay. they could update California and it would be even great. Yeah. Um, okay. Agreed. Your favorite Disney snack. The Dole Whip. Yeah. <laughs> classic. Classic. Favorite quick serve restaurant. The place of the Grand Californian called Whitewater Snacks. That's always been our, our go-to. Your favorite resort hotel. Resort hotel would be the contemporary. And your favorite Disney souvenir. 
probably my memories that I have of, of all my trips there. That's great. David, I do have one last question for you, which is because you've been watching Disney for so long and Disneyland in particular, is there anything that you, you see on the horizon for Disneyland that you're particularly excited about? I just want it to open. I don't, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> right? Uh, it's fair. just so weird for it to be closed and to talk to friends who are dying to visit, friends who work there who are just so anxious to get back to, to work. And it's just, it's a it's a painful time. It's a hard time. And it's just the world doesn't seem quite right without Disneyland. Yeah, we t- totally agree. I, I feel like sort of beggars can't be choosers in this way in that I, I just I don't care if they don't update anything right now. I just want to get to go back. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Yeah. Well, David, we really appreciate you taking the time to come onto the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Do you want to share with folks, you know, where they can find your books and maybe how they can, you know, connect or read more about your stories? Yeah, the easiest way to buy any of my books is from Amazon. The best way to read regular stories I write is on micechat.com. Mm-hmm. I do every month or two, I'll, I'll do a story. I used to do more frequently, but now there's not a whole lot going on <laughs> <laughs> at Disneyland. And I'll usually do regular events, but again, those are all on ice as well. Hope to be back back in public soon. All right. Well, I, I will encourage everyone to go out and check out David's books. They're really fantastic. And we have all of them sitting in our house, even if we haven't read all of them quite yet. We are going to read through them. But as I said at the beginning, Mouse Tales was one of my personal favorites from my time living in Southern California and going to Disneyland. So David, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. It was so much fun having David on the show this week. As I said there at the end, I when I was living in Southern California, I read his book Mouse Tales while I was going to Disneyland, and I remember it fondly, and it was so much fun rereading it in advance of this interview. I really appreciate David taking the time to come on the show. To have someone with his experience and expertise on was just a lot of fun, so I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it this week. This episode will certainly rank as one of my favorites for a while to come. So with that, we do not have a review to read on the air this week. We're all caught up with the five-star reviews, but we are doing a giveaway this month. So if you head over to Apple Podcasts between now and the end of August, we're giving away a complete signed set of Cleaning the Kingdom, both volumes, signed by Ken and his co-author Lynn Barron, who was on the show with us recently. So if you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us that five-star written review. We will enter your name into a drawing to win that set of books and send them off to you. Um, You've got until the end of August to do that. With that, I do want to thank everyone for listening this week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can keep getting great content from the DCL Duo each week. Please also head over and leave us one of those five-star written reviews on Apple Podcasts. They're super helpful in making the podcast more visible for folks who might be looking for us. If you'd like to send us a question or be a guest on the show, please email us at dclduo at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media at dclduo. If you've done that already or recently and we're having a few of you on the show, so head over, reach out, let us know what you want to hear. You can also head over to the DCL Duo channel on YouTube for even more great content We've posted our DCL 101 series, the first episode of that series. So more to come there. Head over, check it out. The DCL Duo podcast and vlog are not affiliated with Disney Cruise Line, the Walt Disney Company, or the Walt Disney family of theme parks. The views expressed on the show are solely those of the individuals on the podcast and in no way reflect the views of the Walt Disney Company or Disney Cruise Line. If you have a question about a Disney cruise or a Walt Disney vacation, please contact Disney directly or your own travel agent. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time for another fabulous Disney adventure with the DCL. CL Duo. Good night.